Hey guys, thank you for joining me today. My name is Dr. Tom LeHue, and today I have the distinct pleasure of having Dr. Beatrice Chestnut uh, as a, a, a guest on my channel. I'm interviewing her uh, and her work so that you, if you don't know about her, I, I reference her a lot on these videos among other authors, but I love her books. I've got three of them here behind me and this book, uh, her latest one, The Enneagram Guide to Waking Up, Fantastic book, and I would recommend them to you if you want to do a little bit more deep diving into the Enneagram yourself. Uh, her her uh, base of operations is out on the West Coast in California in San Francisco. So I was thrilled to be able to interview her and, uh, and to talk about the Enneagram with her, and I hope that you'll benefit, I know that you will, from uh, this interview today. Just a reminder that in the description below is a link to TomLahue.com where you can uh, find out more information, book Enneagram coaching appointments, uh, and all kinds of other information. I also put a link in the description to uh, Beatrice Chestnut's website as well. So take advantage of all those resources that they provide. Thank you guys, and here's the all video. Right. Well, welcome to our guest. I'm so pleased to have Beatrice Chestnut um, with me uh, doing an interview, and I've got at least three of her books. She may have some more that I don't know about, but these books, fantastic. If you guys don't have these books yet, I highly recommend them, especially the last one that she just finished with Uranio uh, Paez. And uh, I've seen him on some of your uh, YouTube videos and I know you have a podcast, but uh, yeah. tell us tell us what else you guys offer because you do classes and retreats and all kinds of things. So give a second to yeah. just tell us like what kind of, you know, work you're doing and how you mm -hmm. offer it and how people can access your information. Sure, sure. So um, I have a couple different streams of work. Um, I, I do work on my own as a leadership and team development consultant um, with the Enneagram always. Uh, but the main part of my work I do with Uranio and um, we offer kind of two different lines of work. One is we we basically train professionals, therapists, spiritual directors, coaches, people like that, how to use the Enneagram at a deep level. So how to know the system really well and develop more skill and confidence in using it with clients, no matter what your professional practice might be. We also have Enneagram teachers. Um, and then, so that's one kind of line. We have a professional certification and we do professional workshops and we offer extra things for people in who are getting certified by us. Uh, and then we also are really committed to helping people really apply the Enneagram to do deep inner work. Um, so psychos, we believe that the Enneagram is a psycho-spiritual symbol of transformation um, and that um, it, it helps us understand both in terms of our type, um, what the growth path is, um, but also uh, as a symbolic map of kind of a hero's journey or map of transformation, kind of the levels of awareness that we can achieve if we really do our psychological work, our emotional work, um, and, and sort of what we need to do to have really positive and sustainable spiritual experiences. Um, now, I always say, especially depending on what audience I'm talking to, that you can talk about the Enneagram in psychological terms, in spiritual terms, both at the same time or neither. Um, and sometimes, for instance, when I do work in businesses, I talk more in practical terms. Um, but that's one of the things I like about the system. But 
you know, in my heart of heart, you know, I think the heart of what Uranio and I do is for people who really love the Enneagram and get really engaged and, and um, motivated by the clarity it provides, we offer kind of an avenue or a pathway to doing really deep inner work, like taking it as far as somebody wants to go. And because of that, we also have tried to create a community um, of people who are doing that work. So people who come to our retreats, you know, you bond with the people who you're at your retreats. And then we also offer kind of an ongoing development program because often people come to a, a retreat and they have a big opening or a big powerful experience. And then they just kind of go back to their lives and um, everybody needs support on the path. And so both in terms of cultivating a community of practitioners, like through our professional certification program, so that if you come to us, like we help you find, you know, a, a therapist, an Enneagram informed therapist or spiritual director. Um, but also in our program, you, you know, if you're in it, you get a mentor who kind of helps you kind of navigate the work between retreats, between, between sort of deeper level kind of experiences you might get at a particular workshop or retreat. Yeah. Okay. Wow. A lot of stuff, a lot of stuff going on. And I saw your schedule. It's really busy with a lot of great, uh, you know, upcoming activities. I hope people will go over there. I'll put a link in my description to your site so they can check out all those opportunities. Um, you know, it's interesting, like you said it, you said it super, you said like as a tool for transformation. And I think a lot of the people that I interact with, um, it's, it's like they, they got to a certain point in learning about the Enneagram. Like they probably learned about their own type and their husband's type and maybe a couple kids. Mm -hmm. And then they got stuck mm -hmm. on grandpa. I can't figure him out. And mm -hmm. then it's, it's not really seen as, as anything beyond that. It's like, oh, well, mm -hmm. I'm an eight. So that's what I am, or I'm a two. That's right. what I am. By the way, you're a two. So if people don't know that, right? Yes. You, yeah, yeah, you're a two, and uh, yeah. and I'm a seven, of course. But so some, you know, a lot of times it seems like people they learn a little bit about it. They ha ha ha. I'm good at this. Mm -hmm. I'm bad at that. And mm -hmm. uh, then they don't really see it as anything beyond that. But mm -hmm. explain a little bit, like as a tool for transformation using right. the Enneagram to see blind spots and that kind of thing. Just speak to that for a second. Sure. Um, yeah. And I, and I think, you know, everybody's growth path is their own business, you know? And so certainly you're right. I think people kind of fall into different categories when they meet the Enneagram. Some people think it's sort of interesting and they get interested in it for a while, but they don't really get, um, you know, they don't get inspired to do like really the deepest inner work. And, that's okay. It's kind of like everybody's journey is, is their own business. Um, but the Enneagram, you know, part of the power of it is um, it, for those who are interested and, and, you know, of course, some people, as you know, get super interested. Like it, it's, and that's the way it was for me. You know, when I learned the Enneagram and I learned my type, it was like, whoa, it was like a whole world opened up. It was like, I didn't believe something like this was possible you know, I didn't think anything like this existed that could give me so much insight into myself um, at such a deep level. And it's sort of like the more you study it, the more you get out of it. You know, I think some some, you know, personality tools or self-help methods or they're sort of finite. You know, you learn what you learn. And it might help you a bit, but it's but I think the Enneagram is sort of endless uh, because I think it is uh 
you know, you know, my, my opinion is it derives from ancient wisdom um, and a kind of uh, deep path of, um, you know, developing a higher level of consciousness that has been around for, you know, centuries. And so I think when you're working with something like that, for those who are interested, it offers a lot of, I think, first of all, information, but then also a kind of like mapping out of here's what you need to become aware of, to become more whole, to um, to embrace your shadow. You know, I think it, it's a lot about blind spots. It's a lot about, well, my personality, which isn't all of me, it's part of who I am. It's the part of me that developed to interface with the outside world, to protect myself from being hurt when I was young. But when I become an adult, if I just keep operating at that level without realizing it, I'm limiting myself. You know, I'm not able to reach my full potential. And for those of us who see it as a spiritual tool, it's in a way, it's it's a it offers a pathway to manifesting more of your higher self or divine nature or whatever words that you want to use. And, um, and, and part of the way it does that is it says, okay, if you're this type, you know, you tend to focus on this, you know, and you tend not to focus on this, you know, this tends to be a blind spot and something that you're unconsciously actively avoiding. And you can continue to do that. And your ego momentum is going to make you avoid that because all of us humans is part of being human. We're motivated to stay safe and stay with what's familiar and comfortable, you know, but that's why I think it's a, it's akin to the hero's journey. But if you are willing to take the invitation and if you're willing to allow yourself to feel uncomfortable and vulnerable and scared and other hard feelings, um, the Enneagram offers a pathway through meeting challenges and getting to a higher and higher level of understand self-understanding, understanding of others, acceptance of oneself, acceptance of, of uh, the way things are. And I think ultimately a window into uh, a kind a way to expand and uh, be much, much more than who we are in ego or when we're identified with personality when we think that's who we are. Yeah, we're just <clears throat> kind of like running our default system. Yeah. Right. And you call that in this book, you call that zombie. And zombie mode. Yeah. 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 Zombie yeah, yeah. mode. So yeah. yeah, in zombie mode, you mean refer, just unpack that a little bit when somebody's sure. stuck in zombie mode. Cause I think some yeah. types it's a little easier to see it when they, I mean, they kind of look like zombies, but then others are very yeah. active. They think they're fully engaged with life, but they're just as much in zombie mode too. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, one aspect of the Enneagram that's so powerful is it shows us we, we need a growth path that's individualized, that's customized to our particular mode of going to sleep, you know? And so zombie mode, I think it was interesting when I was first sort of crafting the initial ideas for that book, it just sort of came out. And I, because I think I was looking for kind of a way that was maybe a little bit shocking to kind of convey to people like, Hey, you know, if you're not doing, if you're not on a conscious inner growth path, you know, doing conscious practices and tasks and 
you're kind of in, in, you're kind of walking around, you're kind of sleepwalking through life, you know? And I think uh, it's so funny because so many of us are intrigued or drawn to things like zombie movies. And I love how different genres like horror and zombie, in a way, they're sort of reflecting our shadow back to us. And I think one shadow we all share is the tendency to fall asleep to our own capacities or to what's possible for us, usually just out of wanting to stay comfortable. Um, so I, I liked, I, I chose, we chose the zombie metaphor because we thought it helped people realize, hey, you could choose that, but just know you're choosing that. Um, and when you choose not to attend to your de inner development, you know, just like you would, if you choose not to take care of your physical health, you might get sick, you know, you might develop conditions that aren't so good for you. And it's a little bit like that, only I think in our, in the Western world, we're not always so attuned to what we need to do for our mental or, or emotional health. And so it was, I think, a way of saying, you know, there's either this or this, there's either, well, you can kind of stay being asleep or you can wake up. Yeah. Even though you're highly active and even highly productive, for yeah. example, I've done a lot of appointments with threes and yes. extremely productive. I remember yes. meeting with a, with a three recently who was working overtime while we were doing our appointment. She was working on work and she had a she was very, successful, yeah. very successful job, very lucrative income, but she kind of ended up in this place in life where she was all alone. And I just asked her, I said, um, you know, how fulfilled on a scale of zero to a hundred percent how fulfilled do you feel with life she said oh maybe 60 percent and it's like yeah. to me that that tells you everything you need to know you're you're a hundred percent invested in work and accomplishing and achieving mm -hmm. and winning and you're doing great on the surface everybody would say mm -hmm. and you would say very successful but when you actually start to unpack like how fulfilled am i in life or i always think like you know, my, my larger goals in life, you know, how fulfilled am I? I'm not very fulfilled, but yet I can't seem to stop. Here I am yes. pushing on in these things that really aren't working for me. Exactly. Exactly. And that's such a good point. It's like everybody's zombie mode looks different, you know, and, and being asleep for a three means being a workaholic. And it might mean being super successful in worldly terms. And that's why I think it can be really hard for threes to initiate a growth path uh, because everything's working, like they're, they're getting rewarded for what they're doing in ego. And so that's the beauty of the Enneagram is it highlights, well, if you're a three, you actually need to do nothing. That's yeah. your growth path. You know, right. that's waking up, waking up is feeling your feelings, even if it means being sad or lost or afraid. That's good. That's progress. And so one of the things we train our, you know, practitioners to do like therapists and, and spiritual directors is when someone starts feeling bad because they're doing good inner work, like a seven or a three, like slowing down and being more present, even when they start to feel like this is uncomfortable, I hate it. You're there to say you're on the right track. Like that's a big, that's a, that's a, that's good news that you're actually yeah. feeling bad. Yeah, because real growth 
always feels awkward or uncomfortable. Like when you learn a language or try to learn to play the piano, you feel like an idiot. You feel like you're messing up. You feel like this is awkward. It takes me out of what's comfortable. And I've noticed that there are people often that are very focused on improving themselves, but not like this, like this. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. how can I leverage my personality in order to, and I'm thinking, well, that's not really the best form of growth to stay locked in your compulsions and locked in your impulses. Like we want to chat. The Enneagram really challenges those impulses and says, hey, you know, this is working for you. 70% of the time or 80% of the time, but there's always going to be this sometimes the things that make sense to you really aren't moving you toward your goals in life. Exactly. Exactly. And like you said, what, what does transformation mean with the Enneagram? It means defining what growth is very carefully because sometimes what people call growth is really like you're saying an upgrade of their personality habits. It's like, yeah, no, my personality is working even better. Well, your personality is also at a certain point limiting you from growing beyond these entrenched habits or the default mode. Yeah, right. And a lot of times we don't even see it. We just, it's familiar. So we're locked into it. We push in even harder. And, you know, you're the first, you're actually the second person that I ever saw in writing mention the stretch into the other wing or stretch mm -hmm. into the wings. Alice Freiling wrote a book, and I think she's a four, and it's a little book called Mirror of the Soul. And mm -hmm. she said something about, you know, the numbers we're connected to, like you think the other four numbers. And I think this was the first book that really where I read someone else say, because it's something I picked up on just in coaching people that like every mm -hmm. eight, needs the nine and seven wing and every nine needs a one and eight wing. And, yeah. and I just started to pick that up. And then I saw you said it as stretches. I always thought it was like borrowing from your neighbors or leaning into your wings. And, mm -hmm. and I was, mm -hmm. I was so pleased to see that because mm. a lot of times, I, I guess what I'm saying is a lot of times mm -hmm. the part of the direction that we need to grow in is kind of right next to us, but uncomfortable for us. Yes. Yes. And usually one wing is a little more comfortable than the other one, um, often for historical or biographical reasons. But one, I, I like that you're introducing this idea because it, it points to the reason why I'm kind of against people who say, like, I'm a seven with an eight wing. Uh, because to me, that's saying I'm sort of fixed here. I'm, right. I'm more fixed on the level of description than I am growth. You know, I had a friend who used to say, if we have one wing, a bird is gonna fly around in circles, you know? And instead, and the Enneagram's not about flying around in circles, it's about moving beyond. And I think if we see the wings not as a descriptor or a subtype, but rather, how am I doing? You know, accessing the sort of positive side of both of my wings, and how can I see those as a kind of, gentle growth stretch or antidote to what I'm doing too much of. Um, and I had a coach early on in my Enneagram career say, say to me one time, I was doing typing, I was learning to do typing interviews. And I did a video of myself and she was watching the video. She goes, you know, what are you doing here? It seems like you're connect, you're spending way too much energy connecting with this person. You have a task to do. 
you got to get through these questions. You got to figure out what type they are. And I was like, oh, and she said, lean into your three wing. And it was so interesting because I'm much more one-ish, mainly because my brother and my father are both ones. And so I lived with a lot of one growing up. Um, but I have access to three. And when I consciously, when I'm getting too emotional or too oriented toward what's going on with the other person, recognizing, hey, I've got an agenda here and I need to kind of ease up on that a little bit and go more in this direction. It's like a balancing out that's really healthy. And I think it also draws on the fact that, you know, the Enneagram is a model of wholeness. It's a circle. And our, our identifying with one type is kind of a way of overdoing one and stubbornly resisting, adapting, bringing in more of the others. I love that because <laughs> in my way of thinking, it's a little bit like you're stuck over here in this one perspective and you don't realize that you're seeing everything from it. Just keep in mind, there's eight other legitimate ways of seeing the world that it would be good for you to kind of listen to those other types and say, how, you know, I don't do it the way a one does it, but I can see that a little bit of oneness would probably be good for me. A little more one, a little more, you know, of these other, just learning to think a little bit like those other types, or at least ask the questions that they ask and care about some of the things they care about. Um you know, not only is that going to improve my own life, but also to help me have compassion for those other people in my life that don't do things the way I would do it or don't have the same value structure that I have, for sure. It's exactly. And the wings and the airline points are the, the, the first steps in doing, like we have special access to those. We have a special relationship. Some people will say, you know, I'm a two. Oh, that's my five. Like, well, no, I mean, not really. (laughs) Let's look first at two and then let's look at, especially your airline points and see, see what's going on. There you go. So there are, there are some aspects of Enneagram theory that I don't agree with as much only because the test for me of Enneagram theory is, does it work? You know, does it work to really help people grow? And one, and, and while we use the airline movements a lot, and we talk a lot about them and see them as really central, we don't use the integration disintegration language for them because, and to an extent, Russ Hudson has even disavowed that language, partly because we think what it ends up doing is it ends up giving people a sense of one arrow movement is bad and one is good. Yeah, you know, I, I integrate that. something good at this one and I disintegrate or I, you know, something bad happens at this other one. And we see it more this way that either arrow line point can be bad if we go there unconsciously. And in some ways, the arrows are, even though they're mainly growth paths, um, they are also um, places uh, where we act out the low side of types, almost like a release valve under stress. So I think you can go to either arrow line point under stress um, and act out the low side of that type. In the last couple of years in the pandemic, I was at the low side of four quite a bit, let me tell you, which is my integration set, you know? Right, right. Um, And even though we believe that the arrow two, which is sometimes called disintegration, can raise defenses and it can initiate almost an experience of disintegrating, we think that's just one little piece of it. And really that's the arrow of spiritual growth. 
And so when we call it the era of disintegration, people lose sight of the fact that that's actually where you're going. And that although it raises defenses, if you can push through those, it creates a lot of expansion and you integrate a lot of good stuff there too. So we just don't use that language only because we think it's misleading. And, um, and we like to help people recognize that it's more about the order you use them in when using them as a growth, growth pathway. We call it the path of revolution. It's important to go against the arrow first, what's sometimes called the integration arrow, because often that's what had to be left behind in childhood. Who I really think writes really well about this is Sandra Maitri um, and Almas. Um, and it's like, often we had to leave something behind in childhood because it wasn't supported. And so it's almost like going back in time. And we do, when we do our inner work retreats, we sometimes do work on an Enneagram mat on the floor. And we have people walk between their main line and go against. And oftentimes they have um, regressions to childhood and they go on that point. Like for me, I'm a two, I'd go back to four and I've, I've actually done this, had a rebirthing experience at four or had a regression to childhood, you know, doing psychological work where I'm getting in touch with a deep trauma or wound that happened early on in life that I can have the opportunity to use as leverage for growth if I work through that. So we talk, talk about doing that work against the arrow first, and then going back to your main point, integrating that, and then going to the arrow with um, what's sometimes also been called the arrow of stress. We call it the resolution point. We call it the energizing point and the resolution point, because then no work that you do with the arrow toward the resolution point is going to be sustainable if you haven't done the integration work at the arrow against. Um, so we believe both are really important. And it's a little bit like the going against the arrow is going back in time and going with the arrow is going into the future. You know, that's the direction of who you're going to be. And often, even though it can be stressful to integrate the, the healthy aspects of that point, it's really, really important and really positive. Right. Wow. Well said. And I always think of it like there are certain warnings that those other types might give your type. You know, I think about mm. what is a one warn a seven, <laughs> probably a lot of things. <laughs> now your work focuses on a lot on subtypes and right. I, you know, I think you guys just do a great job talking about subtypes. And that's one of those things that, I remember when I was learning all of this information, I kept putting off subtypes because it seemed like there's a lot there to try to figure out. And then when I finally just did a deep dive into it, and I did a video series on it. Um, I just realized like, wow, this is really important. So if, if you learn your types and you understand wings and lines of all, you know, all that, but you, you never really push into learning about subtypes, what are you giving up? Well, I think you're giving up a whole deeper layer of self-understanding because the subtypes point to the most unconscious and automatic behaviors, the biggest blind spots. Um, so there's sort of like different layers of blind spots. You know, <clears throat> like when I first learned I was a two, it was like, oh yeah, I do need everyone to like me you know, and I will go after that one person in the room that I don't think approves of me and really, you know, 
um, maybe that's not so good, you know? And so that's sort of the first layer, but then the subtypes give us much more specific, more nuanced access to our deepest blind spots and our deepest shadows. Now, when I was growing up in the Enneagram, I've been studying it for over 30 years. I learned it, you know, in my early twenties from David Daniels, um, who was a family friend. I knew his son, um, and David Daniels. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I saw Palmer man. too was an influence on you. Yeah. This one, yep. this one's like a kick in the face. It's so good. Helen Palmer. Yeah. yeah. Great That's one of my too. favorites. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And um, when I was kind of in the early years, when I heard subtypes, I sort of felt like there wasn't much there there. So I didn't really like the subtypes teaching the first 14 years I was studying the Enneagram. It wasn't until Claudio Naranjo, who, you know, is really one of the seminal you know, uh, pioneers in the Enneagram world wasn't until I heard him talking about the subtypes in 2004. Um, and he talked about them in a way I had never heard, heard them talked about before. And I think he had just continued to develop his understanding over the 30 years after his original teaching leaked out and people started building on it. And when I heard him talk about it in 2004, it blew my mind all over again. You know, it was a similar revelation to when I found out I was a two in 1990. Um, and in 2004, when he described the subtypes, it was like so much more detail, so much more information, so much more stuff that was hard to take in. Like, you know, when I first heard him talk about my subtype, he said type self-preservation twos are childlike. And the first thing I thought is, oh, that can't be me. I'm not childlike. So I didn't see that at all, right? And that's a much deeper layer than as a two, you want everyone to like you, right? That's sort of, you know, you go around helping people to get something back. Oh, that's a blind spot. That's uncomfortable to take in, but it's more palatable than you act like a child and you think you're independent, but you're actually very dependent on people in ways that you don't see. And it was like, whoa, I really didn't, didn't want to see that. And it took a lot to kind of, so I think the subtypes are, they're also, they also help with typing, right? Because when you know the three versions of the nine types, a lot of times what you'll find is, wow, I didn't even know this version existed because in a lot of the books, they only talk about this version, you know, like a self-pres Four, no, I had never heard of that before. And when I went and started teaching about the subtypes, I had a lot of people changing their types because they didn't know it was possible. They didn't know what was possible to be. You could be this way and still be that type. So the self-preservation four is a four that doesn't look unhappy. And some people think all fours are unhappy. You know, it's actually a four that kind of looks like a seven sometimes. Yeah. You know, the self-pres three, the sexual three, I didn't, I'd never heard of those. I'd only really heard of the social three. So it gives a lot more texture, a lot more nuance, and a lot more information about what you really, really need to focus on to truly grow. Yeah, one of the things that I saw in your video uh, was as a social seven, <laughs> you know, wants to be a good guy. And sometimes has to lean in. For me, I feel like it's leaning into that eight and being more 
uh, owning my assertive space a little more because I want everybody else to be okay. I want everybody else to be happy. I want the environment to be happy. And I don't want to be, so sacrifice becomes like a key. Yeah. And I, you know, you wouldn't know that if you were just looking up sevens, you would read about sevens and you would just think, oh yeah, fun, loving, free spirited, doesn't want to be restricted. But, you know, as a social seven, a counter seven, I kind of restrict myself sometimes. And you wouldn't know that stuff without subtypes. I always think of it a little bit like the flavoring on the, you know, so you've got chicken, but you can make it Indian chicken is very different than Mexican chicken. And and sometimes with those subtypes, um, it can cause you to look like another type or confuse yeah. yourself with another type. And a, a lot of my appointments are just that, you know, where you realize, oh, yeah, you're not a seven, you're a two, or you're a self-preservation yes. four, or you're, yeah, right. And it, so yes, the encouragement would be if you're watching this video and you haven't spent some time on subtypes, spend some time on subtypes. It's definitely worth it. And Chestnuts, your books are great on that. Uh, just helping you really process that because sometimes, you know, if you were to read what is self-preservation, what is social, what is sexual, it doesn't always get fleshed out that way in those specific types. You might read self-preservation. Right. Oh yeah. You focus on water, shelter, food, you know, the basics of safety, but then that isn't always the way it's going to look for that specific type. So, yes. Exactly. Exactly. The three instincts alone don't really, don't really give you a sense of how deep, deeply nuanced the subtypes are, because once you mix up self-preservation with six, it looks different than self-preservation looks with nine or with one or with three. Um, and like you said, being a social seven, it's like, who would have thought that, you know, you mix the dominant social instinct with seven and you actually get a seven who's very seven-ish in many ways, you know, very thinking out of the box, upbeat, all these things, but very focused on other people being happy, even sometimes to the, at the expense of their own pleasure or happiness. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. I got a couple questions for you. So let's talk about two-ness for a minute. Um, okay. Has there ever been times when you have caught that like, my two-ness isn't working for me? Like, I mean, two's great. You guys, you know, are there to care about people in big ways and support and help and encourage and connect and so many wonderful things about two. But has there ever been times when you're like, oh my goodness, I'm such a two. This is, this is not working for me. And uh, can you describe like that, what that's like for you? Oh, yeah, I would say almost constantly. Um, I think I think that um, twos are one of the type in the Enneagram world generally that are often misunderstood because some of the teaching about two is often very simplistic. It's often just, it stops at, oh, they're very helpful. They're always looking, you know, they like to meet people's needs so that other people depend on them and like them. And they don't get enough into the dark side of two. Um, and I often say like fours are over pathologized and twos are under pathologized. Um, and even sometimes in some cultures, like I've heard, like when I've worked with people from the South or people who were raised with a strong, like Christian upbringing, that the two is what I was trained to be, you know, I had oh, yeah. to be nice and polite. Um, but I would say for me, I'm almost constantly 
aware of the problems of being a two and the downside. And part of that is, um, you know, often really looking to others and needing to be too focused on what they're doing so that I can feel a certain way, you know? So not being able to just have more boundaries to sort of say, okay, your feelings are your feelings, my feelings are my feelings. Like being a little bit too worried about somebody else approving of me or somebody else doing something for me so I can feel this way or I can do that or, you know, and, and at times not owning my own ability to just act on my own behalf or do what I want to do without regard to the impact it has on others um, or always overdoing it, you know, when I'm interacting with others, you know, working a little too hard, you know, trying a little too hard to please somebody. Like even when I'm doing Enneagram teaching, it's like, you know, I create more pressure for myself because I'm so worried that it, you know, I really want everyone to like it and I want everyone to get the most out of it. They possibly can. And I remember when I was working more actively as a psychotherapist, um, I was working with a consultant and I would go talk with the consultant about my clients. Right. And at the end of every session with my consultant, the message is always the same. I'm working way too hard. It's like, it's, it's my client's job for them to grow and take charge of their own, but I'm doing, it's like I over-function because, you know, unconsciously, it's like, I think that's what I need to do to feel loved or to feel supported or feel, you know, like people appreciate who I am. Um, so it's, it's ever present, you know, and my ego is always involved. And so it's a, it's just a constant, it's a constant effort to observe that without adding on more pressure by judging myself, you know? So just, oh, there I go again. Okay, what could I do to sort of free myself a little bit for this? Maybe I need to not care about what that person's doing. Maybe I need to not get in that person's business. You know, maybe I need to, whatever they're doing, you know, that's okay. Uh, you know, maybe I'm not responsible for the way this person feels or for, you know, saving that person's life. I'm not superhuman. You know, we always think, I think we, that we can do more than we can, that we should do more than, than is our part, you know? So always at asking things like, what do I need right now? Or what's mine to do and what's not mine to do? And when is enough enough? Yeah. Yeah. That ability, I always think of it as like tapping your head and laughing at yourself, you know? And of course, as a seven laughing at yourself, it makes sense to me, but it's just how I feel about it. Like, catching myself and saying, oh my goodness, I'm such a seven. Like I'm literally on a boat with my family complaining we're not on jet skis. Like that, <laughs> the, the problem is not my family. The problem is not the boat. The problem is I'm a seven feeling the stuff sevens feel. Yes. And if I can catch myself in that and laugh at that, have a little bit more grace and compassion with myself, everybody's better off. And, you know, I saw, I was, I was talking to a guy one time who was a two and he was a school teacher and he had a sign that he put on his door. He's like, I had to put this sign on my door because I needed the reminder every day. And it was a sign that said to the students, I can't care about you more than you do. Ah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because he was getting in that loop, you know, where he's like, I, I've got to tell myself, you can't care about people growing and changing and developing and becoming everything more than they do themselves. 
Exactly. You need to let them do a big part of the job. You're just there to facilitate a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Fantastic. And of course, my wife's a two wing one and we've been married 30 plus years. So, yeah. And I thought you're exactly right about the twos, because, you know, every time people take the Enneagram test, they're like, oh, I, I'm a two. And everybody around him's like, you're not a two, you're not helpful at all. Or they say, yeah, oh, yeah, I'm yeah. a seven. I, and it's like everybody yeah. thinks two and seven, those are like, and, and we realize, you and I realize, we have our dark side. Not every seven is happy, upbeat, positive all the time. Sometimes they can really struggle with some depression or some sadness or some frustration. And not every two is sharing love abundantly in the world some of them are just sitting at home wondering how come i'm not being loved well so we all have this sort of dark side that i think on the surface people don't realize you know that they just think oh those people look nice and friendly so i want to be that and you well right. and I, I realized early on too that twos like you said can be every bit as complex as fours mm. yeah yes. because you read fours at first and you're like, what is this? What is this push pull thing? Like, how does that, mm -hmm. but yeah, yeah, I got a question for you. So when you're speaking to people at a conference or at a staff development retreat, mm -hmm. um, do you ever hit that line where what I'm teaching these people is going to make them so uncomfortable <laughs> And maybe look at each other like, don't tell them that my sin is sloth. Don't tell them my sin is anger. And there's mm -hmm. there's this fine line that I don't know where it's at yet, where you want to give people enough information without making things worse for them at the time. You know, do you, have you, have you mm -hmm. discovered this or have you felt this challenge? Yeah, I do. I, I think that... Um... I think often those kinds of things get regulated in some ways by the way you talk about it, you know? Um, and I also try to go step by step, you know? Uh, I also try to talk a little bit about what the Enneagram is, again, in very practical language. Um, and sometimes I will say there is something we call the ick factor, you know, where you will feel uncomfortable um, because you know, typically there's a lot of this stuff that you aren't aware of and don't want to be aware of. And that's part of the functioning of your personality is to make sure you're not aware of these things that will make you feel uncomfortable. But by looking at what makes you feel uncomfortable, that's really the road to liberation. Because if you can not be afraid of what you tend to be afraid of, and then therefore avoid, that causes, you know, that will, that will, you know, alleviate a lot of problems. You know, if you're someone who's constantly avoiding conflict, um, you're, you're going to create more problems for yourself, avoiding conflict. If you can learn to be uncomfortable in conflict and then learn to tolerate that discomfort and even get good at it and see it as something that brings you closer to people and not just something that separates you, you know, that's going to create a lot of growth. That's going to shift your life in a positive direction. So I think I try to talk about the positives without, you know, and at the same time, acknowledge the discomfort and acknowledge that looking at blind spots isn't easy. There's a reason why we call it the shadow, you know, it's because there are parts of us we think are unacceptable, but there's good news. And I think in writing the Enneagram to guide to waking up, the way I first conceived of it is it's a good news, bad news, good news story. 
you know, the good news is there's this thing called the Enneagram that can help you a lot if you find your type and you can right away start getting really interesting insights about yourself. The bad news is there are some things it's going to tell you about yourself that you don't want to hear that are going to make you uncomfortable. And you're going to realize your path of growth leads through some difficulty that, you know, but no pain, no gain. You know, if we engage in conscious suffering, then the good news again is that that's real liberation uh, because you're not running from parts of yourself. You're not like avoiding parts of yourself, judging parts of yourself. You're confronting all that stuff and working with it to the point where it gets better. Fantastic. Yeah. Because sometimes you'll see what people are running toward, but they're they're not very we're not very aware of what we're running from. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. And I think and sevens are at the top of that list. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah, and when yeah, you turn yeah. around, when you turn around and try to face that dragon that's kind of chasing you all your life, you know, it's a little bit, yeah, great. Fantastic. Exactly. Well, is there anything else that you would like to share with this audience that maybe they don't know about you or about your work or anything else come to mind? Or is there any new study that you've done that you just think, wow, this is so fascinating or whatever that's on your mind, anything else? Um, I don't think so. I think it's been pretty comprehensive. I mean, uh, one of the reasons, one of the things the Enneagram led me to do is go back to school and become a psychotherapist. Um, and I think um, I, I think the Enneagram has been such a great tool for me as a psychotherapist, and I knew it before I even went to school. Um, and so I think it, it feels like almost a gift to me because it makes growth easier. It's almost like a shorthand or a, a guidebook or, you know, it's something that that's more revealing. I will say one thing that I'm kind of excited about, not necessarily, well, and one of the things I, I love about the, um, the Enneagram also is that it fits in with existing theories in psychology. You know, it fits in with object relations theory and different things. And when you put that all together, I think it, it really gives a lot of, it, it connects to other growth methodologies that can be good too. Yeah, for sure. And my, my background is always ministry and, mm -hmm. you know, you're working with people, you're trying to understand you know, how can I help this couple? I feel overwhelmed. And why is this guy who's a good guy acting like such a, not a good guy. And yeah, yeah it, and it certainly fits in with the Christian worldview. And I think many other worldviews as well. I think a lot of right. people from a lot of different backgrounds find usefulness uh, with this tool. So yeah. fantastic. Dr. Chestnut, thank you so much for being a part of this show. I really appreciate you, your willingness and your hard work and your dedication. And I wish many blessings on your work and you just continue to be the productive person that you are. Um, and thank you for your contribution. Thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much. It's been great talking with you. Great.